0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today uh, we are joined by two special guests, Dr. Matt Koster, a rheumatologist, and Dr. Garrett Choby, a rhinologist, and we will be discussing uh, GPA. Dr. Koster, Dr. Choby, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks for uh, having us, Jason. Yeah, happy to be part of this.
0: So, when we talk about GPA, uh, Dr. Koster, can you tell us what a classic presentation is for someone who has GPA?
2: Yeah, certainly. So, when we're talking about GPA, just to highlight this condition, it's rare. And I think that's of most importance to explain is that when we're talking about a condition that has an annual incidence of 10 to 20 million per population, Many people may not see this disease uh, ever in their lifetime, either internal medicine, surgery, uh, or even some rheumatologists. And so understanding the typical and atypical presentations of this condition is important. From a rheumatologist standpoint, some classic features to consider are patients who have recurrent sinusitis and so these are patients who end up having kind of ongoing uh, episodic uh, requirements in which they're treated with antibiotics or steroids and it can happen for many years but they'll often end up having additional symptoms beyond that and so fever malaise fatigue uh, they can also end up having some joint inflammation Also findings of cough uh, or shortness of breath, specifically if they end up having some coughing of blood at any point in time, that's very alarming. And then other findings that they may not end up disclosing, but things that you can find out through investigations such as renal dysfunction, Uh, And also some key features are anyone who has uh, what we call mononeuritis multiplex, so kind of nerve involvement in different territories that are not explained by single nerve irritation, such as wrist drop or foot drop. So anyone with those kind of constellation of features of multi-organ system involvement should raise the question of a systemic inflammatory disease. And if they're involving the upper um, kind of airways and the lungs, GPA should be on a high list of differential.
0: Sure. And Dr. Choby, when you evaluate patients with GPA in your clinic, what do you typically look for and what do you see? And I think we may have gotten ahead of ourselves too. Can you tell us what GPA stands for and if it has any other names?
1: Sure. So uh, GPA is the, is the current in vogue uh, name for this, the pro- this uh, disease process, and that's uh, granulomatosis with polyangitis. This uh, uh, formerly has the name of Wegener's disease, uh, but as with many eponyms, uh, that has sort of gone by the wayside and now more commonly referred to as GPA. When these patients present to our clinic, the most common uh, otolaryngology manifestation is typically in the nose. And because this is a a condition of vasculitis with uh, granulomatous inflammation of blood vessels, in the nose, this results in ischemic changes. The most typical findings that we see are things like uh, septal perforations, and when severe enough, it can cause a nose deformity. Many patients have ongoing crusting in their nose from the ischemic uh, changes. And then we oftentimes also see almost an an auto-destructive picture. So the inferior turbinates, the nasal floor, the middle turbinates, and the lateral nasal wall can progressively become destroyed from this disease process uh, from ongoing uh, ischemia and vasculitic changes. The second thing I'll mention is that this also can affect other areas uh, related to the otolaryngologist. Things like uh, otitis media and hearing loss can occur, as well as uh, one of the more classic findings of subglottic stenosis or inflammation uh, in these patients.
0: And when you evaluate these patients, Dr. Chobi, what else is on your differential diagnosis?
1: So when these patients come to us and don't have a formal diagnosis of GPA yet, uh, a number of other possibilities uh, can be entertained, especially from a nasal standpoint. We think of things like uh, acute or chronic invasive uh, fungal sinusitis, especially with uh, nasal destructive lesions. Uh, Other things like uh, illicit drug use, like cocaine, can also manifest itself in this area. We think a little bit about uh, midline destructive lesion or an NKT cell lymphoma. And then other rheumatologic diseases can also manifest uh, similarly, such as uh, EGPA or Trug-Strauss disease, uh, polychondritis or sarcoidosis as well.
0: And Dr. Koster, can you tell us what is GPA? Can you tell us a little bit about the pathophysiology?
2: Yeah, certainly. So it's not fully understood uh, as far as the exact uh, etiologic cause of this. There's been an understanding that there is somewhat of a genetic predisposition. And when there's been uh, genome-wide associated studies that have been done in patients with GPA and also the other subsets of ANCA-associated vasculitis, such as EGPA that Dr. Choby mentioned and then also the the third of the three microscopic polyangiitis that doesn't infect the uh, upper airways there is clustering of certain polymorphisms that are seen that seem to uh, increase the frequency and presence of uh, anti neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies as well as uh, other factors such as um, neutrophil dysregulation So we know that there's some genetic elements, but it's not a directly genetic disease, and that's something that patients always ask but it's something in which if you have a first degree relative, you probably have a 10 to 100% increased risk, or 10 to 100 time, I should say, increased risk. But when you're starting from 10 per million, you're talking about probably increasing it to one in 10,000. So genetics play a part, but there's something else that has to kind of stimulate or prompt the immune system to become dysregulated. And what we know from at least pathophysiologic studies is that it is really uh, surrounding neutrophils. So what happens is you get these neutrophils that are pre-activated or primed by some pro-inflammatory mediator responding to a stimulus, whatever that stimulus is, whether it's infection, whether it's a reaction to a drug or whether it's an environmental stimulus. These neutrophils then start to express proteins uh, in their cell surface, uh, Protonase-3, and also myeloperoxidase and they can also release these proteins uh, into the local environment those proteins are then identified by circulating anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies (ANCA), which then bind to those proteins and that results in an activation of these neutrophils once they're activated they adhere to the the vascular endothelium and then further release additional factors that both activate uh, neutrophil chemoattractants, so things that kind of uh, stimulate the recruitment of neutrophils. And one of the key chemoattractants that we are aware of that's becoming clinically and therapeutically important is something called complement 5A. When these uh, neutrophils get primed and activate C5A, there's this feedback loop. And it's that feedback loop that ultimately leads to the uh, kind of autoimmune and autoinflammatory process that leads to a destructive disease. So that inflammation is amplified and continues to end up having more neutrophils traffic through tissue into the vascular walls and causing necrosis in the vessel wall and the surrounding extravascular tissue. So it's that kind of process that can occur essentially in any organ system that can lead to the local damage that's ultimately seen.
0: And one question that I like to ask in this setting is, um, what's the natural history of this disease? If someone's diagnosed with this and we don't treat it, what would we expect to happen?
2: So there's uh, different levels of severity uh, with patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis. So there are patients who can have limited forms. And often, these limited forms with GPA are predominantly uh, sinonasal inflammation. Now, for those patients, if you don't catch them and don't diagnose them, often they'll get some periodic bursts of prednisone now and then when they have a, a flare of sinusitis that may keep things at bay. But the ongoing inflammation in the small vessels will slowly over time end up leading to destructive findings, which are the things that uh, Dr. Choby and his rhinology colleagues can end up seeing the ramifications of. And so seeing kind of the severe crusting, uh, the mucus destruction, the perforation of the nasal septum, uh, the cartilaginous destruction, and then ultimately even wearing away of the sinonasal bone cavities. And so these can be pretty profound if they're not treated. That's even just with the local disease. Now, if there's um, further organ systems that are involved, for instance, the eye with like episcleritis or scleritis or orbital pseudotumor, that could lead to blindness. For patients who have lung disease, they can end up getting hemoptysis from capillaritis that can lead to pulmonary failure and require ventilation. Patients who have severe renal disease can end up uh, developing renal insufficiency or renal failure requiring dialysis. Patients who end up having small vessel involvement in their brain can have stroke, and patients who have small vessel involvement in the peripheral nervous system can end up having uh, irreparable motor dysfunction. And so these are conditions that, before you ended up having effective therapies, in the systemic form, the non-localized form, it could be universally fatal uh, in these patients if they weren't adequately treated.
0: Sure. And when someone presents to your clinic and you suspect that they have GPA, what's your initial workup?
2: So, uh, initially, it's really trying to understand a very comprehensive evaluation of the patient. And so, for rheumatologists, our our diseases really don't align with a single organ system. And so we have to essentially ask them a very broad review of systems. And we have to try to take the pieces of that information and try to put it together to say, are these things important or not? Chronic sinusitis is very common. Between 1% and 10% of the population can end up having it at some point in time. And so people who just have chronic sinusitis are not in and of themselves a high suspicion, but if they have that plus several other symptoms, then we start raising concern. But trying to assess a real head-to-toe review of systems and then a very thorough investigation on exam. And for us, that requires at a minimum from an ENT standpoint, a speculum exam, an evaluation for any auricular inflammation, any chondral destruction, any septal uh, perforation, any significant mucus crusting on speculum exam. But then we're also listening to their lungs. We're checking their neurologic uh, function to make sure there's no deficits. A thorough skin exam to make sure that there's no features of small vessel vasculitis or something called leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And so that's the exam portion. And so the history, the exam, are key. But then some additional features that are helpful in our evaluation. Our laboratory uh, investigations and imaging studies. So some key uh, laboratory investigations include ANCA serologies. And there's two main ways that labs end up testing this. One is through checking C-ANCA and P-ANCA. That's done through something called immunofluorescence, where they titrate it out in wells to look for positivity. And then there's kind of their confirmatory uh, antibodies that are called protonase 3, PR3, and myeloperoxidase, MPO. So for patients with GPA, most commonly they'll end up having C-ANCA with PR3 antibody. That's going to be in the majority of cases, and often more to the realm of 80 to 90% of cases that have positive ANCA serologies, whereas some may have P-ANCA and myeloperoxidase antibody. The patients who have limited disease may not have those antibodies be present, so you have to maintain a high level of suspicion. We end up checking inflammatory markers, which are often elevated. We check regular uh, CBC with differential to look for any features of thrombocytosis or um, decreased uh, hemoglobin. Inflammatory markers are uh, very often positive in these patients at high levels in some circumstances with sedrate and C-reactor protein. And then also, it's very important to look at renal function with creatinine and urinalysis to look for either blood in the urine or protein in the urine. That would indicate renal involvement. Beyond that, imaging studies, um, sinus imaging with CT scan can be helpful to assess for the burden of disease if present. And then what I recommend, even if patients are asymptomatic, is at a minimum to get a chest x-ray, but often a high-resolution non-contrast CT scan can pick up some subtle findings of abnormalities such as ground glass opacities that may not be identified on chest x-ray, which can typically pick up features of things like nodularity uh, or uh, adenopathy in the, the hilum or mediastinum.
0: And Dr. Choby, what's your workup when you see these folks in clinic?
1: So oftentimes, they will come to us with a sinus CT scan, and this is really important uh, in their workup. There can be a number of uh, nonspecific findings, uh, such as mucosal inflammation and general crusting. But some tip-offs can be, again, uh, septal perforation, which you can pick up on a CT scan, or a more destructive process uh, in the mucosa, in the bone of the lateral nasal wall, uh, can be fairly characteristic of GPA. And then we also do uh, nasal endoscopy in all of these cases. Uh, Dr. Koster and I share a lot of patients together and I will um, directly share these pictures we take with endoscopy uh, with him and sort of characterize to what degree their nose looks like a classic case of GPA. In addition, we have a low threshold to biopsy these patients and that can either be the active inflammation around a septal perforation or active destruction in area of the uh, lateral nasal wall. These are also not all the time uh, very specific. They may simply come back as general inflammation. but the tip off for GPA in a biopsy of the nasal cavity would be uh, vasculitic changes, usually with a neutrophil predominant uh, vasculitis, as well as uh, necrotizing granulomas in giant cells would be uh, the more typical findings specific for GPA, but are not present in, in specificity in a number of these samples.
0: Sure. And I know in rhinology clinic, you're more likely to use a rigid endoscope. Do you often use a flexible scope to evaluate the larynx? Is there usefulness in that?
1: We oftentimes will uh, use a flex scope to take at least a cursory look at the larynx. However, if these patients have any symptoms of uh, airway difficulties, a uh, history of intermittent strider, or noisy breathing, then I will certainly get involved, uh, my colleagues in laryngology or head and neck, and have them do a more formal uh, laryngeal exam, and potentially even a subglottic exam uh, in the clinic to evaluate for a subglottic stenosis.
0: Dr. Koster, we've talked about a lot of different symptoms in the workup, including lab studies and possible biopsy. How do you make an official diagnosis of GPA?
2: Yeah, so I'd say that there's different levels of certainty when you're making a diagnosis of GPA. Certainly, if you have classical features such as uh, ENT involvement with sinonasal destructive features, pulmonary involvement with nodularity plus other organ manifestations in a patient with positive ANCA serologies, um, and a biopsy that confirms disease in some location, whether that be sinuses kidney, skin, lung, etc. That's a, a very conclusive case, and I think everybody will feel comfortable with that. Then there's patients who have the appropriate clinical characteristics, and they may have positive anchor serologies, but their biopsy is non-specific or negative that's still something in which I think we feel comfortable with making the diagnosis and I think that from an ENT uh, education standpoint you need to know that often as Dr. Choby mentioned these biopsies may be non-specific that doesn't mean it's not there and so you still have to have a, a high threshold for suspicion to end up determining whether treatment's required for patients who have symptoms that are suspicious for this disease but they have negative serologies and non-specific or negative biopsies that's where you have to use your judgment to look for other etiologies that may mimic these findings and one of the things that you really want to make sure that is not present is infection because immunosuppression is not going to make that better and can make things complicated for patients who just have positive anchor serology and minor ENT findings, we would probably just observe and not end up making that diagnosis unless other organ systems were affected. That could end up increasing our suspicion and threshold for diagnosis.
0: And in uh, kind of preparing to talk to you about this, I heard about the Chapel Hill consensus. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So there have been different ways for people to describe um The different primary vasculitides and by primary vasculitides we mean where the vasculitis is the disease itself as opposed to a secondary vasculitis where it's caused by something so for instance like hepatitis b associated polyarteritis nodosa that's a secondary vasculitis so this was a a consensus group that uh, initially met in the early 1990s and then they revised uh, their nomenclature in 2012 which is where uh, they changed the name to GPA as opposed to Wegner's, and that paper, that position paper, goes through the individual primary vasculitides and kind of uses the appropriate language and then also highlights the organs that are commonly affected and what labs, imaging, and biopsy studies should be expected in cases for this. And so for people who have an interest in vasculitis of any type from any field, I think that that's a reasonable read to get some additional information
0: great um we've talked about uh presentation workup uh evaluation that kind of thing uh i'd like to move on next to treatment and i understand we can talk about it from a rheumatology side and an ent side um dr koster do you want to start with how you treat folks uh who present with gpa
2: sure so the the first thing again is trying to understand what organ systems are affected. So often we end up trying to stage these patients as far as trying to identify where things are at the beginning so that we can one, determine their severity and two, determine what things need to be monitored to look for efficacy and treatment response. For patients who have mild to moderate uh, sinonasal abnormalities or limited GPA, we'll typically treat those patients with moderate doses of steroids 20 to 30 milligrams with a taper, and then often these patients, specifically patients who have C-ANCA PR3 positivity, will often relapse with recurrence of sinonasal abnormalities with uh, reduction in the steroids. So we'll often end up employing another medication, like a disease-modifying agent, such as methotrexate, which is the most common. Other kind of moderate-level immunosuppression, such as azathioprine or less commonly mycophenolate, could be used in those circumstances. For patients who have systemic disease in which there's severe involvement, whether that be renal, uh, neurologic, either central or peripheral, cardiac or pulmonary involvement, those patients often require what we call induction therapy, which Historically, has been with cyclophosphamide, but now is more commonly with rituximab, which was approved for these conditions back in 2010 and has gained a lot of increased utilization since that time. For patients who have very severe sinus disease, uh, in which they've either failed initial treatments or they have severe destructive findings, we will sometimes treat those patients also aggressively, either with things like cyclophosphamide or rituximab for induction therapy. And that's often kind of guided um, by our ENT colleagues as far as how bad they see things uh, when they're evaluating it, or are these patients failing to respond to the therapies that are common or typical at the lower level?
0: And Dr. Chobi, when you're evaluating these patients, how do you decide um, how to treat them and what treatment options you offer them
1: i would say that our, our initial role in treatment is helping with the diagnosis in many cases and that's with things like examination and communicating those findings as well as potentially offering a uh, biopsy i will also mention briefly that even though the biopsy is non-specific in many cases it can also be helpful to rule out other disease processes as dr koster mentioned you hate to be treating someone for a limited form of gpa when in fact something else is brewing, and one of those things can be, again, uh, a lymphoma or a midline destructive lesion. So Sometimes a simple biopsy will help to rule out those other processes and allow uh, treatment with immunosuppressive medication for GPA. We'll also do things in the nose to help to diminish crusting. That can either be uh, topical saline rinses or frequent debridements in the clinic. We will occasionally add uh, topical mupirocin to a rinse, which has been shown to decrease uh, crusting and um, staph aureus load in some cases. And there's also some low-level evidence that occasional or intermittent use of low levels of um, antibiotics such as uh, Bactrim can be helpful, again, largely to diminish crusting uh, in these patients. The bigger question that arises oftentimes is they can be quite symptomatic from a sinus standpoint. And when, and when you will or when you will consider performing sinus surgery, and we, we uh, look at this very carefully because these patients have a very, very high chance of scarring and sort of closing on their sinuses postoperatively because you may be creating an injury in a field that is otherwise uh, very inflamed. So we really hold off on offering sinus surgery to these patients until their disease is very well controlled. And that's usually in conjunction with our, our rheumatology colleagues like Dr. Koster. We oftentimes would like to have them uh, stabilized and not needing uh, any rescue uh, steroid medication for about six months or so and also ensuring that their uh, inflammatory blood levels have also normalized. Things like the uh, ESR and the CRP have been under um, good control for a long period of time. And then we'll discuss with our rheumatology colleagues the optimal dosage of things like rituximab and steroids in the perioperative period. I'll also mention that with saddle nose deformities and large septal perforations, our colleagues in facial plastic surgery are oftentimes involved, and uh, they also, again, take a similar consideration when they may offer the patient uh, reconstruction with things like a rib graft because, of course, they do not want that to be affected by uh, an ongoing inflammatory process.
0: And Dr. Koster, how do you monitor these patients? How do you follow up with them, and how do you counsel them on their prognosis?
2: So for patients who end up having um, visible abnormalities, for instance, patients who have predominant skin vasculitis, uh, that is very easily uh, and visibly identified as far as improvement. For patients who have lung disease, uh, we monitor them often by pulmonary function testing to see if they have improvements uh, in those parameters, as well as by imaging, like resolution or decrease in nodularity or ground glass opacities. If they have renal dysfunction, then often watching the creatinine uh, improve or watching the urinalysis have decrease or resolution of hematuria or proteinuria. And then, of course, if they've had elevated inflammatory markers like sedimentation rate or C-reactor protein, watching those trend down to normal uh, is ideal. We do, in some patients, uh, depending on... uh, how positive or if positive their anchor serologies are that can be used in some circumstances. Patients may go from strongly positive to negative with treatment. And those patients seeing kind of an increased swing with the anchor serologies can kind of forecast uh, or be seen in the context of a flare. But there are some patients in which those anchor serologies have no bearing on their disease activity and may remain positive even if they're in clinical remission for our ent colleagues it's extremely helpful because while i can look at scans i can do a thorough exam i can't look all the way back in the sinuses or down into the airways um, in the subglottic region and so often when we're following these patients which there's a lot of intense visits at the beginning And then once they're stabilized, less frequent visits, maybe every two to four months afterwards, is to periodically have the ENT physicians, if they had predominant sinus symptoms to begin with, to see them back and do periodic scopes to see if things are looking better. Because they can correlate uh, as well to say whether or not the tissue seems to be healing or if there's active disease and so with our multidisciplinary clinics uh, here, we're often able to have that same day where they may be able to see the ENT person earlier in the morning and then see us later that morning or in the early afternoon so that we can have an ongoing discussion of what things look like.
0: Well, this has been a super helpful conversation. Dr. Koster, thanks so much. Um, before I provide a summary of what we've talked about, is there anything you, Dr. Koster, Dr. Choby would like to add?
1: I'll just I'll just mention that uh, this is a, a really challenging disease and it's really awesome to work with uh, you know experts like Dr. Koster who have a real interest uh, and expertise in this disease process and we can learn a ton from each other when we work together and it's been uh, very rewarding. I would just echo that
2: I think the important thing is that when you're dealing with multi-system rare diseases that can be complicating both in the diagnosis and management. Is to really get a core group of people who have experience with these diseases and are able to communicate effectively to the best needs of the patient.
0: Well, thank you all so much for being here. I'll now uh, provide a quick summary of what we've talked about. Um, GPA or um, granulomatosis with polyangiitis is a rheumatologic disease primarily, but it will um, typically manifest with uh, multiple episodes of chronic sinusitis and. Other manifestations, such as kidney, lung, or uh, neural um, issues, Uh, some of the ENT manifestations particularly particularly are chronic rhinosinusitis, but we can also see things like saddle nose uh, deformity and subglottic stenosis, as well as uh, otitis. Initial workup includes ESR and CRP uh, with ANCA, C-ANCA being uh, more frequently positive, but P-ANCA can also be positive, up to 10%. And diagnosis is contingent on the uh, clinical uh, picture being brought together, um, and biopsy can have a role in here, which is where ENT can come into play. Uh, From an ENT side, treatment can include uh, nasal rinses or other treatments that are consistent with chronic rhinosinusitis, but mupiracin can also be helpful, as can Bactrim uh, from a systemic antibiotic standpoint. And then from a rheumatologic side, uh, there are a lot of systemic therapies, including steroids, methotrexate, rituximab, and azathioprine. Anything else I left out or it's worth mentioning?
2: No, I think that was very thorough. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you, Jason.
0: Thank you. I'll now go into a time of questions before we end this episode. As a reminder, I'll ask a question and then wait for a few seconds and then provide the answer. So the first question is, what is the pathology of GPA? GPA is a small to medium vessel vasculitis, and if you take a biopsy, it would show necrosis and granulomas with vasculitic inflammation. And remember, this is predominantly neutrophil-driven. The next question is, uh, what are the common laboratory findings when you test for GPA? Lab workup uh, can involve a lot of things, but when we get uh, ESR and CRP, that will likely be elevated. And when we do ANCA studies, C-ANCA is more likely to be positive. And these uh, patients are uh, almost always positive from an ANCA standpoint, but that's not always the case. What is the most common first manifestation of GPA. One of the most common first manifestations of GPA is uh, sinusitis or chronic sinusitis, which is why uh, this can be seen in ENT clinic with uh, so much regularity. And finally, what are some treatment options for GPA, including systemic and uh, ENT or sinonasal related treatments? From an ENT side of things, uh, treatment can involve steroid rinses, Uh, systemic antibiotics, including Bactrim, and topical antibiotics, including Mupiracin. From a systemic standpoint, um, steroids, methotrexate, rituximab, and azathioprine include some of the more commonly used treatments in these patients. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.